told you not don't ever do that. It that me that voice whiskey No, I I do not make him do this, people. Like he just does it for no reason. He just looks, he thinks it helps him, like, and mentally soothes him as he does it. Like it makes him forgive him of his sins. It's weird. It's weird. Whiskey sad, Shawnee mad. And yet, like, like I'm disgusted and creeped out, and he feels so much better inside. That's the really terrible part. I just wish yeah. I could stop. I, saying I don't things know like whether that. you know you could stop. Or I did a you could... watching this. I just know that it's damning, and people need to know that Sean is a psychopath, frenzy, north by northwest motherfucker. The following may contain harsh language, poorly communicated ideas, and does not reflect the opinions of iHeartRadio. I'm going to get myself a bottle of beer. Mother, I'm going downtown and send a telegram. My darling, who do you know to send a telegram to? I know a wonderful person who will come and shake us all up. Just the one to save us. You've gone crazy. What do you mean, save us? All this time, there's been one right person to save us. Mother, what's Uncle Charlie's address? Uncle Charlie? Welcome to Take Two Plus, the only podcast on the internet that is also, uh, I'm happy to announce, a registered cult. Take Two Plus is happy to announce that we stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters of Zod and the children of the Forbidden Light. Dr. Onassis has found uh, the light in each of us and we must use our, our halogen receptors in order to harness the light of the children of Monaghan, you see, and the villages of the Forgotten Seekers in the Sky Kingdom. So I think I could speak for all of us here at uh, Take Two Plus when I say the, the blood of the wolf leader will feed the children of our ancestors and the hyganicolds. I think you know something, don't you? That young fellow told you something. Jack, why should he know anything about you? Now look, Charlie. Something's come between us. I don't want that to happen. Why, we're old friends. Uh, so this week we looked at Shadow of a Doubt in our Hitchcock Top 9 draft. Uh, and for those of us who are just tuning in, Tyler is going to explain the rules, Tyler. So we've each picked our top three Hitchcock movies in a fantasy sports-style draft. Each week we'll discuss one of them and decide where it stacks up, ultimately ending up with Sir Alfred Hitchcock's top nine films ranked in order. Points will then be assigned based on the standing. First place film gets one point, second place film gets two points, etc., etc. At the end, we tally everyone's numbers and the person with the lowest score wins. This week's entry is my third round pick, the film stars Joseph Cotton, Teresa Wright, and McDonald Carey. Hey, Shawnee, why don't you tell us what Shadow of a Doubt is all about? Okay, so the story oh, of Shadow of a Doubt. Yeah. <laughs> you like that, Chris? Okay, let's get into the story of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the story juicy. of Shadow, it's juicy, yeah. We, yeah. It's like every time I talk, you know? Okay, all right. The story of Shadow of a Doubt centers on Uncle Charlie, who arrives in Santa Rosa for a visit with his family. The purpose of his visit is to throw two investigators hot on his scent off of his trail. His family features a a doting older sister, her goofy husband, and an adoring younger younger niece uh, named after her uncle. 
Gradually, young Charlie comes to suspect that her uncle may be the mystery man wanted by police for the killing of several widows. She teams up with a young detective, and when Uncle Charlie becomes suspicious of his niece, he tries to eliminate her. The film climaxes on board a train that Uncle Charlie is escaping on. He tries one last time to kill his niece, but in the ensuing scuffle, Uncle Charlie is the one who falls off of the train and to his well-deserved death. Spoilers. Chris, do we have a sponsor this week? Because you haven't specifically told us who it is yet. Sean, I'm so happy you asked. A big shout-out to this week's sponsor, Dylan's Fancy Free Mustard. It's not free. It's just fancy free. Dylan's Fancy Free Mustard. Are you starting to make tough decisions on whether you can afford the mustard you need? Are you debating on mustard or feeding your many birds? Dylan's Fancy Free Mustard makes it easy to feed your birds and eat mustard without compromising. No more dead birds and lots of that sweet golden mustard that made Dylan famous. Everyone wins, especially Dylan. And Sean, you've yes, described yes. it flawlessly. It was Hitchcock's favorite movie. Patricia Hitchcock's daughter said that he loved it so much because he loved the idea of a menace coming to a small town. In this case, the small town of Santa Rosa, California. And it plays every town in USA. I do kind of regret saying that last week now, though, because then I read in my Hitchcock Truffaut book that he didn't actually mean that. No? That he didn't mean what? It was his favorite or that it could Yeah, be he said, like Truffaut says to him, like, so this film's been said that it's your favorite film. And he says, well, if I said that, it's been misconstrued. What I meant is, considering what ended up being made, it was probably one of my better films or something. Of course, that effect. Like, I don't like, he's just basically trying to hedge his bet and saying, like, oh, I didn't really mean it. I just kind of said it. I mean, that's what he's telling Truffaut. He probably then went on like a, two years later and tell some other guy, oh yeah, like. His problem is just like our problem. That is, how do you pick a favorite? Yeah. That is true. At, uh, after rewatching this film, this is a really great film, but it definitely would not be my favorite. I think, you know what it is it's though, really more than favorite and not favorite, it's, you know, each movie is just a sum of parts and there are parts in each movie that are like the best thing that he's ever done. Even a movie like Topaz, has one scene in particular that I'm thinking of when the, uh, the assassination of the woman in the purple dress and her kind of her dress turning into the looking like the blood. The it's the only memorable her. moment from the only memorable moment from that film. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. That. But I'm saying but, that yeah. that is, that is just amazing. And you know, the entire movie isn't amazing, but it does feature some classic Hitchcock. Maybe I don't have as close connections as you do to the Hitchcock family. But um, Sandra Rosa, you know, it spells America, uh, which appealed to Hitchcock because he wasn't American. And so he was looking for something that he saw as the quintessential American town. And Santa Rosa, California, quite frankly, does look like that Frank, Frank Capra. Idealic small town. Idealized. 1950s town. This is definitely his most American first film. Like, yeah. like his first real American film, I should say. White picket like, fence, yeah. you know, courthouse in the center of town. That opening shot when like it pans and it's like that idea like bridge shot, I thought it was San, uh, San, San Francisco at first, but it's not Santa Rosa. It's close to San, supposed to be close to San Francisco. Like it's just that perfect, like beautiful, like serene, picturesque uh, landscape shot. And then right in the yeah. middle, 
are those two like homeless people that are just kind of like sitting there and like they're just like yeah. they just coming up right but it's almost like that opened to blue velvet when lynch pushes in on everything and in the middle of it all is this ear lying in this picturesque grass and there's like this lopped off ear right there like it's, well, and so i feel like we have this kind of you know, reflection this moral reflection in the geography uh in the entrant uh, introduction introducing joseph well, i agree there's Charlie. definitely some yeah. Well, and then to, we, like Uncle Charlie is the corruption that comes to the town. I could see, I know maybe it's not his actual favorite film, like you said, Sean, but I could see why from a director's point of view, like this would be your favorite movie. But the, the exception that. of the kind of train sequence at the end, there's no huge set pieces. There's no convoluted plot. Like it's all tone it's like a simple and atmosphere. He, and yeah, it's all whatever he can bring to the table to make it suspenseful. Well, he's notorious for not enjoying shooting. Uh, he, just, he just wants to get it over with. Right? Yeah, but this is the one he did yeah. enjoy working on. This is like the only film he actually seemed to have a pleasant experience on. Yeah. Uh, Ironically, because it wasn't in studio for most of it. Yeah, that's true. It was like, it's a, that's weird for him to not be in studio, right? Like, this yeah. is like one of those few pictures that he ever shot. Apparently, I think he just liked said. the actors more than some of the other actors he worked with on this one. Apparently, he bought yeah. the house um, because it was a little rough around the edges and just as the family's kind of, you know, they're not rich and so there's a little uh, wear and tear here and there. Uh, the family who sold the house uh, for the film uh, were so excited once they heard it was for a film, they painted it all up and made it all so nice as though that they had to, once they started filming, I guess before preparing to film, they had to like dirty it up and make it a little worse off. Um, yeah. That's great. I would love to be there when Hitchcock saw it, like all pretty yeah. up and just watch him shit brick. <laughs> he would have been so pissed. Yeah. He would have been so angry. But uh, yeah, no, I, I love like the opening of this film's awesome. Um, I also like the, the way the film opens with the, uh, like the opening, like the background imagery of the dancers doing the, uh, the Mary Widow waltz. Like it's such a, like a metaphorical image for Hitchcock. And it's not so, like, that's not something he usually went for. Like that wasn't his thing. Right. He, he was really more of like a Spielbergian, like, you know, the so, actions on the screen doesn't really suggest things. He like puts it there on screen. So that 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 waltz transition that you're talking about, Sean, is very hypnotic. It's like a weird kaleidoscope. Everyone's very similarly dressed. Yeah. And everything. What do you make of that in the context of the film? I thought it was like this, like like world that that Uncle Charlie existed in when he wasn't interacting with other people. He just existed in this consciousness of this waltz. Like he was obsessed with it, and he was obsessed with uh, I, what it symbolized to him, which is like the widows and whatnot and the lifestyle. Uh, but like, it's like, he, it's what he's thinking about at all times when he's not interacting with other people. And then it, what opens the film when we first see him like pushing in on him, like in a dream sequence, almost on the bed, but he's wide awake. So he's obviously daydreaming. And then at the end of the film, as soon as he, as soon as he gets killed, they, he uses that image again. Like, it's like he went right there. Like as soon as he lost consciousness, it's like a subconscious place for him. So that's like his version of heaven or hell, wherever Uncle Charlie ends up. Mm -hmm. It's like that's where he wants to be. That's his, mm -hmm. that's his truth, I guess. You know, I I will mention um, that brings up one of the things that I did think was so realistic, or something that it, it did that did ring true uh, for me, and that was that Charlie, <clears throat> Uncle Charlie, is this, this cunning murderer. Uh, he's on the loose, and yet. More like charming than anything, I think. He's elusive, but I noticed throughout this film, like, there's no one on this planet more than wanted to get caught. Like, he's doing everything he can to be like, I'm a fucking murderer, arrest me. What did he tell you? What did that boy tell you? It's got nothing to do with it. 
hope he never knows anything about you. Charlie, you're a pretty understanding sort of girl. You've heard some little things about me. I guess you're a woman of the world enough to overlook them. He returns home to his family of all places yeah. after getting like single-handedly like po uh, pointed out by two other cops. He walks right past them without like he can they can literally touch him. He's just like whatever, like do no, arrest he, me. Here's the thing, and like here, he like here, he wants to get but, caught. Well, Unless he went home thinking he could hide in plain sight. But here's the he's thing: not, if like, he wasn't not, acting the way he did, he wouldn't have gotten caught because there's in the story the other fellow who takes credit for or the suspect for the uh, Mary Widow murderers, murderers uh, ends up being shot. And so he's pretty much high, and like he's, he's right where he needs to be. He gets away with it, yeah. He could have gotten away with it if it had not been for just him saying like, kind of folding to his niece. And like, you think, for me, it just didn't ring true that he, like, why would he do that? Like it, it seemed very convenient for the story that he did that. That's all. Like in the in the manner in which it's presented, uh, that like after very very minimal questioning, he kind of folds and starts yeah. discussing that like the world's a toilet and that you know. <laughs> you live in a dream. You're a sleepwalker, blind. How do you know what the world is like? Do you know the world is a foul sty? Do you know if you ripped the fronts off houses, you'd find swine? The world's a hell. What does it matter what happens in it? Well, he's been the, his victims like, that's my that. point. Yeah, and so, like, I guess, that was, that, I got that didn't work so much that, for me. I got as the impression as, that, like, I don't know if maybe he wanted to get caught necessarily, but, like, he wanted to brag that he's been getting away with this, sort of, to a certain extent, but he can't because he's going to go to prison if he does. So the only person he can sort of confide in and show off to is his young niece. That, that well, and, and but I think we should save the problems for the later part of this latter part of the segment like we usually do. I just know that you guys are gushing over it, so I just wanted to kind of well, but start that's my like this section of the the section of the podcast is what we like about it. You know? <laughs> I know you want to start getting the laying the groundwork for not yeah. getting. Um, one of the things that I did like about Shadow of a Doubt uh, were the two characters. There's a few things. There's a few really charming characters in this movie. Uh, one of them is the fellow who always interrupts dinner. That little Frenchman beats them all. You can talk all you like about Sherlock Holmes. That little Frenchman beats them all. I read it. Air bubbles don't necessarily kill a person. Those writers from the other side get too fancy. The best way to commit a murder... I know, I know. Hit him on the head with a blunt instrument. Well, it's true, isn't it? and discusses with the uh, father um, the perfect murder and how they kill each other. And it kind of, you know, I guess breaks away from the seriousness and uh, makes the suspense all the much more effective. Um, I guess they're kind of talking about true crime before it was... Uh, before it was popular. I thought, I thought podcasts invented true crime, but I guess not. <laughs> well, we're the only podcast on the internet, so... We would have had to invent it, Chris. Podcaster eventually in the future goes back in time and does invent That's crime, true. but it's uh, it's like the loop hasn't come around yet. It's, uh, it's a little ways. <laughs> Counting conversations like that himself too, right? Like all the fun well, ways to murder somebody in a film and 
the, creating the perfect crime. Like that's right up Hitchcock's alley. And their relationship, if like between like Charlie and Charlie, like it's, I mean, I don't want to get into the problems of it yet because it's not that segment, but like there's issues with it, I think, in terms of like the uh, telepathy kind of angle in terms of their vocabulary of it and stuff, but also just the, um, like, but I do sense like there's this like underlying like incestual element between these two. It's, I'm glad that she named me after you and that she thinks we're both alike. I think we are too. I know it. It's interesting. Like the way that they like, she makes her like hold her hand as she's they're walking across the street and she's like, I want the entire like town to see kind of thing. Like, it's just weird. Yeah. Well, I think Charlie, Charlie almost wants her to be like a protege. I kind of like the telepathy thing. It gives like a almost paranormal. Looks like the shining. Because we're not just an uncle and a niece. It's something else. I know you. I know that you don't tell people a lot of things. I don't either. I have a feeling that inside you somewhere there's something nobody knows about. Something nobody knows? Something secret and wonderful. I'll find it out. Yeah, like Uncle Charlie comes across almost as like. But that's not the right word for it to let to see. Like it's like it's more like an emotional connection. Yeah, exactly. No, like like she, they do, they do talk about that though. They, they, they do. do, uh, Young Charlie does explain that they're like twins because they have this connection that she's able to kind of read Charlie's Uncle Charlie in a way that no one else can, and uh, you know, we see that as being up you know being true in the sense that she's the one that's able to solve this whole situation and kind of be the heroine in a sense um mm. for resolving the conflict of joseph Cohn. and uncle charlie has like this hypnotic hold over almost everyone he comes in contact with the town loves him by the end of this movie even though he's only been there for a couple of weeks His i think the president if the president died him. he would have had a smaller a smaller parade hero than yeah. Uncle Charlie. Like was, so uh, I think it was just even stronger between Uncle Charlie and Charlie Jr. <laughs> yeah, and, and Joseph Cotton's like great in the role. I would say he's probably uh, between like, it's probably between like him and Norman Bates for the best all-time villain in Hitchcock film. Like, and I would, I would, I would give it to Anthony no, Perkins probably. Uh, for, no. For Bates. Anthony Perkins definitely takes it. Anthony Perkins takes it. You got to throw in uh, Claude Rains too in that argument, but that's a mistake. Claude Which Rains. For, uh, for Northwest? Notorious. Notorious. Notorious oh, better. Notorious. Okay. It's been a while. I've got to okay. watch that one again. But, what uh, I found actually interesting, I was reading uh, Hitchcock was thinking about casting Cary Grant instead of Joseph Cotton. But this movie is so similar, like totally to Suspicion, only without the ending. Like in the ending, he couldn't have the ending he wanted because he wouldn't let Cary Grant be a villain. So right, I wonder right. like that led into his decision to cast Joseph Cotton and basically make like the suspicion movie that he wanted to make two years ago. Quite possibly. Yeah. You'd be ashamed to be wanting to make movies like Suspicion though. Suspicion's good till the ending. Wait. I, it's been a while. I forget what happens, yeah, like at the ending like that he's not the killer, I guess. Or whatever, yeah, he's but, not the killer. But that's because the producers had Cary Grant under contract and said you can't make him a villain even though Hitchcock had the whole ending worked out of it him being the yeah, So my, here's my question Tyler maybe you can answer how, how is it possible that a movie can get that far into production without you know a script locked yeah like how how is it that he would even get that far 
I mean, maybe he had the script maybe. locked, and then they said before they started shooting, if you want Cary Grant, you have to change it. I don't know, like, when yeah. the change came, but I know that's <laughs> definitely not the ending Hitchcock wanted. People say shit just to get, like, the ball rolling, right? Like, some producers will, will just be like, yeah, okay, we promise. Yeah, absolutely, we won't touch you. Okay, just sign, sign, the, sign the deal, sign yeah. the deal. And then eventually they'll be like, we were like, we're not, you're not going to hold it to us. Like, we're going to like do this ending if we want this ending. Like, you're going to do it for us. Studios back then were way more of a machine even than they are now too. Like, they'd just be rolling and rolling. Like, they'd shoot things in three, four weeks as opposed to three, four months like they do now. So, yeah, it was certainly a much stronger, like, you're writing things on the fly. Yeah. No, yeah. Like, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that stuff happened. Yeah. But I found that interesting because I do think suspicion is a good. Hitchcock movie up until the ending and this is the better ending obviously that he wanted all along. Dr. Hitchcock Courtesy by David Oselznik. Yeah, I noticed that too. Is that just a thing like they like what does that mean? I, I well, thought that got, was he, like he got leased. He got leased out. Yeah, but that that just is like oh so like it was, was it was a loan out, but Salznik still gets his name on it? Uh, I don't know. I mean, the credit like happens and it doesn't happen sometimes, I think. But like, it was probably because Selznick was such a huge person in Hollywood. Yeah, they gave it to him, obviously. So like, that just would never happen, I guess, these days. Well, they don't, the studios don't own actors like they do. They're kind of of heading that way, though, Netflix, man. So uh, it might eventually come back that way, actually. Yeah. Oh, actually, this is It hasn't been that way for a long time. Side note on, uh, should have brought this up last week. I learned about foreign correspondent. Hitchcock made two and a half grand a week to direct Foreign Correspondent, and David Nosalznik, for loaning him out, got seven and a half grand a week just for them to borrow Hitchcock. Wow. So he was getting paid three times as much as Hitch to not have him. Well, that's how big the producers were back then, right? And that's yeah. what I'm talking about, like with the new wave directors. Like they changed all that shit. The produ- like they are the ones who broke like the system and stuff. And then it just didn't work anymore. But uh, anyway, about this film. <laughs> um, <laughs> Back to this one. <laughs> yeah. uh, what else do I think? Did anyone else get like, I got almost like Dracula vibes from the beginning of Oh, Joseph definitely with Joseph Cotton. He's definitely got like a physical presence, right? Like it's a, like yeah. a huge stage actor. Like that's all what he, that's what he knows, right? His physical presence. And he has this vibe about him the entire time. But he's also got he... this like patronizing attitude. Like when he just like insults his sister, like, yeah, I didn't have done that or something like that. Or you're, you're she's yeah, yeah, and like stupid. belittles the husband, like, the dad at work. Yeah, but even yeah, the way like he, he comes over on the train, like he's hiding like in the dark, like how Dracula hides in the bottom of the yeah. train. Did you notice the big old cloud coming in? As uh, of course, yeah, the dark cloud. Yeah, that's awesome. And the shadows that come across the kitchen. so many great uses of shadow in this movie. Uh, yeah. Get into oh. it before we get into the triple dollar shock. Before we get into Dribble Dollars, a big shout out again to our this week's sponsor, Dylan's Fancy Free Mustard. It's not free, it's just fancy free. Dylan's Fancy Free Mustard. Are you, Sean, let me ask you this. Are your mustard bills going through the roof? All the time, astronomically. Like just okay. every day. So you can still feed your birds though, right? Listen to me. No, yeah. Are you starting yeah. to make tough decisions, Sean? Are you? making tough decisions these days on whether you can afford the mustard you need. Yes. You are. Okay. Well, uh, I, I always, do you have I mean, any birds? Like Frenches. There's I just said, yes, I had many birds. Okay. Well, are you debating on the mustard or feeding your many birds? No, I've got money for both, but just Sophie's barely for the mustard. 
just barely. Okay, well. So what money do I want to spend the mustard on? Here's the thing, Sean. What, you won't no, have what to mustard make... do I want to spend the mustard Sean, on? Sean, Dylan's fancy free mustard makes it easy to feed your birds and eat mustard without compromising. No more dead birds. Dylan, Lots of it. that. Sean, listen. Got listen. it. Dylan's. No more. Dylan's fancy free mustard. Uh, it's not free. It's fancy free. Try Dylan's fancy free mustard. And if you don't find it, the fanciest of free, the zip that adds the freshest zest on the finest fiddle in our free land, then send it to us on the first Sunday of every month. That's the day you can return any rotten or poisonous jars uh, that may have fallen through the cracks. Send any Dylan's <laughs> deadly mustard to the post office and mail the jar back to 3756 Orchard Avenue, Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 453760. That's Dylan's fancy free mustard. The fact that they made you push this like like mm. fancy free mustard return policy kind of, on podcast well, makes me a, really worried about the quality of this mustard and especially whether it, or not it contains poison. There may be a mistake to release this podcast so close to the first of the month. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, you're saying we I, should get paid first. The first Sunday. We should we, like maybe on the second of every month is when we should make this announcement so people forget. To return I'm not sure if I feel comfortable pushing something with such a heavy return policy. Well, you've done it twice now, so I feel I, you're are we, pretty comfortable. Are we, we can't, now we can't turn back. villains? I just think that um, to our listeners, if this is Chris speaking, you should probably throw out the Dylans. Who's, our, who's our one listener again, Chris? What was her name? We have we have one guest. Uh, and her name is Karen. And so, Karen, oh, if you Karen. have fancy free mustard, please throw it out. It's not worth it. Shadow of a doubt. About, like that. Sh- like, yeah. What shot were we talking about? Shadow of a doubt. Oh yeah, like the, the train shot with the with the dark okay, yeah, yeah, out, okay, yeah. out of the, the chain. Three, oh, two, one. Sean, talk about the train shot. I just think it's like one of the most underrated images in all of modern film, probably. Like it's it's, oh it's just like an awesome metaphorical shot for a film, and like because this film is like kind of like forgotten about in Hitchcock's canon a lot of the times. Uh, I just don't think it's appreciated enough. It's an awesome shot. Chris freeze or no? He's just <laughs> he's basking in my Pausing awesomeness. For dramatic um, but I just hey, I think at the uh, yeah. I got you. That was, that was my thought about that. <laughs> okay, well, uh, thank you for that, Sean. Um, I would say that music <laughs> plays an important role in the Shadow of a Dead. It's very prominent. Um, there are some really Especially distinguishing the scenes. And, well, in the waltz, he keeps going back to that. Everyone's humming it. There is a scene when young Charlie says, like, stop humming that, you know, tune. So it, um, I guess it plays a part of the story as well. There's such a nice uh, like use of music between the town before Charlie shows up and then the music when Uncle Charlie is like alone in a room. It's so like dark and sinister and then like nice, happy oh. Americana music when he's not there. there it's such go. a nice contrast. That's a Tyler exclusive, everybody. <laughs> Tyler put that. that in the film. Thank you. Yeah, I, I put that in there myself. Tyler is that podcaster we were talking about, but not yet in the future. The time traveling podcaster. Yeah. Tyler, shh, don't, Tyler. 
I'm gonna go back now and like read all this and like, I'll go back and edit this out later. <laughs> what else did I like about the film? Uh, I think Uncle Charlie, like like having this like immense content for the modern day world, is like interesting, and he has it throughout the entire film. Like as soon as he shows up in town, he starts spewing how much he hates everything. I think though, so. I think it would have been so much more interesting if that was a bit more understated. I don't like how long it takes her to get to that point, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Well, let's uh, talk about it. Like, what, 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 no, let's get into it. I think we've covered. All right, fine, all right. But oh, so by the way, by the way, by the way, don't don't you love don't you love uh, the the two young kids, Anne and Roger? Uh, yeah, she's at hilarious. the dinner table. Like that, yeah, the, the the bickering couple kind of thing. <laughs> he's like a defeated. Uh, he's like a defeated kid. <laughs> that line she has about her mother when her mom's on the phone like she makes no allowance for science it's like she thinks she can make up her distance by the sheer lung power like it's, <laughs> it's like hilarious it's like yeah. just listening to her say that line i kept expecting like a a more sinister scene between that young girl and uncle charlie because she's like wise beyond her years that girl like too smart right. for her own good i think they I would think probably all to... if only she found out first or something or she found yeah out. but like she's too small to like do anything about it yeah though, so charlie she brings out her charlie but charlie doesn't believe her at first because they were too afraid to go there in 1942 yeah. man that's why they wouldn't do that like they would have been, been a nice young kid like that, that. Like, uh, they would probably would do it today just it would have been cool to see yeah. like him being some sort of sinister yeah, I would have. It would have been cool to see her actually play a role in the film. You know what I mean? Other than color, right? And she's hilarious. Yeah. She's like provides this nice like. But there's no real reason for her to be there other than to provide some laughs here and there. Like she serves no purpose in the film. Yeah, it's like, weird because they set no, her up almost like she will, and then she does. Yeah, and they do nothing with her. But like, and that's kind of like there are, there are little things with this film that that don't make it like a perfect film. But yeah, like, actually, I don't think that's not unique to this film. Like most films in the nineteen forties, didn't really do anything too terrible towards True. children. Does this True. movie have yeah, like um, I don't know if there is like the closest thing to it would be the newspaper article in the ring, but that's not really a MacGuffin. Like it's just a clue i would say yeah. the closest thing to it would be the waltz like it's like it's yeah. if she can just figure out what the name of it is she would know she would kind of make that connotation between mary widow and what's going on with like with her uncle because like when she's at a dinner table and she's like humming and she asks like what's, what, what's that song called and she's picking that up from he, her uncle he, because of the shining because yeah there's, because there's of their connection the shining connection because of the time the traveling and they went backwards this is really part one the, shining. Of the, the time traveler took it yeah. in 1942 We'll get into that later. I can't believe um, Stephen King's such a hack that he ripped this off completely. Yeah, yeah. No, well, no, the time traveler ripped Stephen King off. Oh, and right. It back to the that. future. You forgot about that. Like, really, Stephen King's one getting fucked here. Are we back to talking about Endgame and time travel? Is this where this is heading? Well, I mean, I don't see why not. I mean, obviously, Endgame is a superior okay. film, so I'm not just um, <laughs> But uh, <laughs> uh, what was I saying about her? I just say, yeah, there, there are issues with the film. Um, I think that... Uh, like, okay, if we want to get into the whole telepathy thing, I think, like, her explanation of it, especially the post office when she's explaining it to that woman, it's just not what telepathy is. And, like, what their connection is, it's more than just mind reading. It's, like, this emotional symbiosis and connection. It's, like, this because empathy it's, she, like, she that's she, there. It's she, more she, than she, telepathy. He invites Charlie before word comes yeah. that he's invited himself. So, yeah. in a way, it's almost like Uncle Charlie has been invited in the mind yeah. of young Charlie. Like a vampire. I don't know. Do vampires read minds? Yeah, vampires yeah, read minds. Something. I mean, there's obviously different variations. And they need you know? to be invited into a household to come inside. 
I think he is, even Bram really? Stoker's vampire had some telepathy aspect to it. Yeah, he had like a connection with Mina Harker before he even yeah. like comes to America. Yeah. Um, well, I'd but, just like uh, to remind yeah, you too that we're not talking about Dracula. Uh, well, uh, Hitchcock had obviously read it <laughs> so recently before he yeah, went to make Let's film. get back on track. Um, yeah, Sean, I get what you're saying. Like, the telepathy is maybe the wrong word for it, but I don't mind, like, whatever this sort of... Well, the, it's, Absolutely. It's the blood, I like the, the connection. connection. It's just a blood... But like a I also don't... I don't like how they make such a fine point of it. Like, I don't like how they keep referring to it and bringing it up. Some of it, I feel like they should just let it sit and, like, let it visually Can I like, be there. What's the deal with Uncle Charlie and the sister? What's the idea with, uh, I mean, okay. It is really weird, everyone's relationship with Uncle Charlie at the beginning of this movie. The, the father is kind of like on the outskirts, like kind of looking in, like he's almost the audience kind of like, what, like everyone is gushing over the guy. And I don't know, maybe he's like, just like that successful city uncle who brings him gifts and that's yeah, maybe what's charming. Yeah, this charming guy, but. Well, I mean, he doesn't. Have seems a to be, it seems to be weird, though. Like, there's like a weird uh, relationship. Hypnotic. Yeah, I, I think there is like almost like a supernatural aspect to it, right? And like, obviously, he gives something off because he's giving it to Charlie constantly, and he's like, she's like her ch his chosen one, so he's probably doing it purposefully. Like, he's probably projecting more so whatever he has yeah. onto her than it is her picking it up. But because she is his blood, and because she's related to him, and she because she loves him, she is more receptive to it as well. That is becoming to like really overtake her visually and visibly. I can't get that tune out of my head. Maybe if somebody tells me what it is, I'll forget it. It's a warmth. I know it is, but what one? You know, it's the funniest thing. Sometimes I get a tune in my head like that, and pretty soon I hear somebody else humming it, too. I think tunes jump from head to head. Do you know what it is, Uncle Charlie? Uh, no, no, I, I don't know what it is. Uh, but I like with everyone else, he probably does have this ability to just influence, almost like a Jedi or something, you know? Like, he can just, like, make you do what he yeah. wants. Like, did you in notice that scene in the bank? when they go and he deposits that money in the bag and I, I think it's just like a, like a lapse of thought or whatever but he goes and he deposited his forty thousand dollars into his bank account and he hands the guy five bills <laughs> right yeah he, no, it's he hands a small the guy five bills like it's like 10 or 12 yeah. bills and he just said i took forty thousand dollars like i think it's just like to, like they just didn't care kind of like, looked at that like a prop thing but like it could be suggestive of like he can literally get away with that. He can say it's forty thousand dollars, even though it's maybe like ten, and like They're twenty thousand dollar bills. <laughs> yeah, like what's the highest denomination they have? Like, a, they don't have a ten thousand dollar bill, do they? I, I would think so. They're probably not easy to come by. That you could have like five of them on you, whatever. Most, but because he also stole that money from a widow, presumably, right? So whoever, whatever yeah. he has, he stole off somebody. You would presumably think it's her inheritance or whatever, right? He just liquidated yeah. it and turned it. Yeah. So Whatever, Sean. What? You, you know what? <laughs> Keep being a negative, Nancy. What's going on? <laughs> no, no, what I want to make. Let me make one point on Sean's. I like uh, the shining telepathy, whatever you want to call it, aspect of it, though, because it makes Charlie Jr. almost the cause of her own misery. Like she's sitting at home, being, "I'm so bored. I wish something would happen," and then she yeah. invites Charlie in through yeah. her mind or not through her mind, whatever you want to believe there, and it signals like the end of her like naivety and innocence about the world. Like she well, it's like one of those, you uh, wish for. She yeah, be careful what you wish for. It's, uh, you know, she wants well, something I mean, to happen yeah. to her and something does and it's not in the way that, 
yeah, she got the excitement she asked for. It's just, you know, I guess I think we're still looking at that way in the sense that she's just lying there, like wishing that she could see him, and he, because he has his ability, picks up on this and then just goes. Like, I mean, it's still I think him, like, you it's. Know, I mean, I'm not saying he's not to blame, but she, it's her wanting to see him. Let me ask this. Yeah, I think he also like this goes back to my idea of like I think he's just this guy who wants to get caught, and I think he ends up going there because subconsciously it's the worst place you could possibly go and these cops are going to know he's going to and they're on no, his trail immediately no they're on his trail immediately no. you know what because i don't know if he, he wants does caught i think he wants to like uh he wishes he could brag about it and he's hoping with charlie jr that maybe he can have a protege or something of her but like i don't think he wants to get caught and go to jail this, but he like, wants to talk about what he's done and show off like, that's why like, he flaunts how much money he has and that's why he's willing to talk to the ladies group about how successful he is yeah. I think this is it's this conflicted guy going through the motions that he's used to doing at this point, but he's realized that he just can't continue going out of his life like this. And he knows that he's like the cops are on his tail; they're gonna get him eventually. They know his name. He's not even like stupid. He's not even like smart enough to change his name or willing to try. Like he just decides to go home where they can trace him immediately, and they do. They show up immediately with this fake ploy to survey him, and he knows that they're him, and they know that he knows. Like, it's this cat and mouse game between the two of them, and they're just all not telling young Charlie. They're not letting her in on it, but they all know what's no, going do, on here, and she's the only one who doesn't. No, like, I the cops well, eventually the Jack does, which annoys me, and that's the other thing about this film. I think that as soon as he freaks out on her and grabs her and, like, manhandles her slightly, yeah. not even slightly, like, there's, like, quite a forceful and she's grab she's still there. fine afterwards. And yeah. she's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, I love him in the next scene. I love yeah. him. He's like, that moment should have been her moment of awakening and being like, damn, yeah. maybe Uncle Charlie yeah. isn't this perfect guy. Yeah. And, like, it wasn't 100%. that. And I know it was the 40s, and that's a whole other thing in terms no. of sexual politics and stuff. No, that's exactly what that is. That's just, like, that's what it was like in the 40s. Like, women didn't question men, so they th- that scene didn't make sense to write back then. It didn't make sense. She had to be I mean, told she's also like his uncle. Too, like, right? like, she's an authority figure in his life, regardless of a man or not. She's his uncle, his, her mother's brother. Like, he is an authority figure. You'd be afraid to stand up to him. And if yeah, she does, she's like, going to like shatter her mother's whole perception. Of course. Of but there's not even a shadow, literally, ironically enough, a shadow of a doubt in her mind that he oh is a, this bad guy, right? She literally has to be told by this Jack character whose sole purpose is literally just to do that and then set her off down, tumbling down this hill. Because he doesn't do anything at the end of the film. He doesn't show up to help or save the day or anything. It yeah. turns out to Herb, which was a kind of a good thing because the entire film had this running joke of how to like do the perfect murder. And at the end of the day, it's him who like, dissolves it and like interrupts the perfect murder that like charlie could have gotten away with if her hadn't fucked it all up by showing yeah. up and telling everyone about it but like i mean that was a nice little touch but ultimately it should have been like the love interest of the hero was saying the day right if he was in a, in a normal but, talk film that at the end of the day like does the cop does he doesn't think uncle charlie did it though does he like he thinks it's the other guy as far as he's concerned yeah i think as far as you kind of know i think it's more of like because he loves young charlie so much that he's willing yeah, to like but just I think pretend it's charlie jr and because keep the it other guy to got protect caught. her mother yeah so that's what i mean the cop the cop ends up buying the story that it was the other guy he doesn't think it's uncle charlie yeah i mean like we don't really get an idea whether or not he really bought it right like we don't get that moment with him because he's not a character we're really privy to a no but he goes to the with. funeral and doesn't talk about like hey i'm glad we finally caught this dude at the guy's funeral he's just like no but he doesn't say anything like he just kind of like stands there with like this knowing look though a little bit yeah. when charlie leaves his whatever motel or apartment in the opening scene when he's living in like new jersey or new york or wherever uh and the two cops are like on the corner like i don't understand i see like what are, are they just 
following him? Or, or is he under arrest? They're, like, staking, him. they're staking him out, yeah. Yeah, they're but like, like trying, trying to get a feel for him. Here's like, like, the thing, like afterwards, it's like they start chasing him and he has to run away and then like there's a scene of him looking down at them confused and it's like, well, remember, is he, like his, is he under arrest or is he like just... He's uh, under no, suspicion. he's wanted for questioning. He's wanted for questioning because his landlady shows up and she says, two men have come looking for you and I've sent them away and I told them you're not here. Should I have done that or not? And he says, yeah, or whatever. Right? And then he sees them. They're still out there. Yeah. Kind so of like then why would they be like, oh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Well, Joseph because Cotton. it's a Hitchcock thing and he wants a little chase sequence for a second. And he obviously also needs a character to get away. Like, you know, you know what movie didn't... Start. You know what movie didn't have those problems? What? Foreign correspondent. I don't I disagree. <laughs> that's just much more problem than like what foreign yeah. and then foreign correspondent almost certainly did that because that's a Hitchcock trope and he almost certainly did that's, something for this. I sus I will submit to the distinguished members of Take Two Plus that foreign correspondent is better than Shadow of the Doubt. I will let you make Strongly that argument in disagree. a few minutes. Save it for yeah. now. Save it. We're not done talking about other stuff about this film yet, but we'll save it. What do you think the budget of like uh, the average police investigation was like back in the forties? Because these guys can follow him across the and just like hide. Him. I love yeah, their like, ploy. I love their ploy too. It's like we're just looking at American family yeah. <laughs> taking pictures, and it's like, oh, my uncle doesn't want to be involved. He's like, oh, but he's the most important. Yeah, <laughs> and they never question <laughs> why. I love it. Like Joseph like, Cotton, it's like the bank like, the whole time. Like uh, it's like a uh, you know family story for a magazine, huh? And when the guy pictures, huh? There was the guy hands in the film. Lot. He like coughs and just like like prints the film all the way down like, <laughs> yeah. for like a minute, like trying to fuck around with it, and then gives him the film. Like here it is. Like yeah, yeah okay. You just like, literally turned it. around in front of me. Yeah. yeah, I literally watched you switch it. I switched me. it I when no one was looking. Love the ploy is like so big on making sure the whole family's there and they need to talk to everybody, but they come to interview them while the dad's at work at the bank and never question <laughs> when he'll be home for a talk. Yeah, no, there's like a lot of, there's a lot of little silly things in this film. Yeah. I even find like the, um, like <laughs> the entire pilot, like, okay, like the first attempt on her life when he just like, I don't know, like saw as a bit of a stare off or something. <laughs> and like she just literally like, it just screams of a moment. Like it was running late in the afternoon. And Hitch was like, we need to film a death sequence quick. What can we possibly do? Put a camera in front of the stairs, pretend to fall down them. All right, that's it. That's our first, that's our first murder attempt. All right, great. And then like he goes to the elaborate setup later with like the garage and the fire. But then like, are you telling me cars worked without keys back then? There's no way he turned the car on and took the key. Like, the cars used to work that way. <laughs> uh, no way I'm sure you could pull the key out back in the day and keep running. But that, oh, maybe. But, like, I just I can't imagine. Like, that's such a danger. <laughs> and, like, not only that, but, like, a theft thing. But, my yeah, God, but I like, mean, cars said were only, like, a thing for, like, 20 you know, It's years funny that you were assuming that Joseph Cotton had something to do with that. I just assumed it was uh, Teresa Wright being, like, clumsy. <laughs> what the step yeah that's pretty much what i had no like. idea like, you know what that it makes the movie the movie makes a lot more sense with that <laughs> new <laughs> knowing that the I, thought, I thought it was the neighbor playing the ultimate prank on the dad by trying to kill his daughter gotcha <laughs> exactly <laughs> isn't it like ironic that he's dad. the one that finds her yeah. Ooh, interesting yeah yeah like what i mentioned because of the running gag with the joke like you know that he's the one who ends up saving the day at the end it's kind of ironic because he was the one looking for the perfect murder and he ends up 
interrupting the perfect Stopping murder. Stopping like the perfect murder. Gotten away Every time it. I see that guy, I think of Rick Moranis for some reason. He's just got yeah, that oh, Rick Moranis nerdy quality. Total vibe. So great, yeah. He's funny. He's really funny in the movie, though. Yeah. Um, He's in Lifeboat, too, right? I think he might have been. Yeah. Uh, the other issue I have with the film is it kind of like the film is kind of anticlimactic. Like, it's just like there's not a lot of building, and then it ramps up really quick with like the fake murder attempts, and, and then it's over on this weird epilogue on the train. Thing. Like, it works. I, I love the idea good, of him like, dying just, a hero, though. Like, that's so much. I like fun that portion of it for sure. Like, the, that he didn't die, like, with his, like, with his. Uh, Reputation uh, turns yeah, intact. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Only the knows the real truth. It just wasn't that interesting. I mean, like a lot of like the the murder attempt in the garage was okay. Like it was decent enough, but the rest of it wasn't. Like it was just a little anticlimactic for like a film that was really you know it was. I don't know. I, there for a while. I I like it though too because I like the fact that he like he basically got away with it. Like he's get on a train and Charlie June's like leave town and never come back, but he like, can't help himself from trying to like finish her off. Like he. His true colors come out in that moment. Yeah, I found that moment a little weird to me personally. Like, I just don't know why he's bothering right now to kill her. Like, why? I think he just shooting? can't help himself. He's tried to kill her and he failed. Like, it's probably the first murder he's failed at. Yeah, I see, but I, I still go back to the fact that I think he's self-destructive, and I think he was just like at this point, I just want us both to be dead. Like, he's just, he's like, I want like. I mean, that's self-destructive too. That he could have just rode out of town and got away with it, and instead he's trying to true, true. tie up loose ends and mix the other thing i will say about that that moment when he tries to kill her it's just like visually he grabs her by the face in the same way he does it twice throughout earlier parts in the film he grabs her by the face like that and then he like pushes her and it's just like a nice little touch like i know hitch at one point like when you grab her you grab her this way every time three times <laughs> it's just like it's just it's so Sean, specific every Sean, time he grabs her. you're a psychopath All right, let's wrap Watch this up. Watch out for Uncle Sean. Minutes. Let's tell me, why does this film, okay, where does this film ultimately rank? I think, obviously, right now, I think, obviously, it takes number one. I think Tyler's probably going to say it takes number one, too. But yeah, Chris, for sure. please tell us, why should this film not be number one over top of Foreign Correspondent? As uh, it, the list exists right now. Okay, so obviously, Foreign Correspondent is our number one Hitchcock film of all time. And yeah. I believe it should stay that way uh, because... It accomplishes everything that Shadow of a Doubt does, but on a grander scale, at a faster pace, with more interesting films, characters. Films longer. Films longer. With, with more interesting characters. I do like Shadow of a Doubt, don't get me wrong. But so you it's kind of annoying how convenient some of the decisions the characters make are. Like, for instance, um, Joseph Cotton not leaving town um, you know, making such a big deal about the newspaper, which then, you know, raises suspicion for Teresa Wright, uh, young Charlie, um, his folding so quickly. Like these are all like, it all is very convenient and it's lovely. But when you kind of look at it critically, it's, it's not as good as I first thought it was. And I, I would argue that foreign correspondent uh, is more interesting in terms of technological feats, in terms of the story being such a global story and its relevance to the war in a historical context, both for the movie itself and also looking back on it as a 
propaganda film. You make good points. All these make- things, yeah, like, I mean, for Shadow of a Doubt, the redeeming factors are good performances all around. Fantastic um, performances. By far yeah. superior to foreign correspondent, by far, with, with hands down. Yeah. Not, even a, not even a question. Really? Not even a question in that regard. Okay. Uh, I think that the, uh, the, the performances are superior in this film. I think that just the, I would say that the look of this film, is like it's shot, it's, it's shot more beautifully. I think, I think the production value is there in this film that kind of was lacking for a correspondent other than certain what? sections. Certain sections of a correspondent had it John, for sure, no. but not the entire right. film. Not You're the entire wrong. film. You are, okay, No, keep going. I'm keep not. Going. Keep going. No. But this film is like so detailed. Not in you're right about how the scale was much larger in four correspond than it is in this in this film. And in that sense, you're right. Like, yes, it was a bigger production in that sense, but not in terms of just like the overall detailed and quality to detail. Uh I just I find uh Shadow of Doubt looks like a nicer film. I think Hitch was more comfortable in America at this point. He was more comfortable with the crews. His film looks nicer, it looks tighter. It's about 20 minutes shorter than foreign correspondent. I like that. Um <laughs> I think that the overall, like, just like the subtext of the film is there. I don't feel like there was really any subtext to foreign correspondent um, other than like this, like war drama that was going on, but Hitchcock was battling with it himself internally. So it wasn't really there in foreign correspondent the way it should have been. It was just kind of an adventure film and that's what it was. And Shadow of a Doubt has more going on than that, I think. And that's why I would put Shadow of a Doubt over top of what do you think, Ty? Yeah, I agree. I, I like foreign correspondent, but I think it relies very heavily on set pieces and a plot that's kind of dull, aside from the big action sequences, if I'm being truly honest. Uh, this is a much smaller in scope, which I think is a lot more fun for Hitchcock to play with and see what he can do. Like you said, he brings the terror to, the, to small town America. It makes you think of, oh, what could my neighbor be up to that I don't know? It's like... Uh, you know, he does it again in Psycho. Everyone's got to take a shower eventually. You know, make a shower terrifying. Everybody lives in these small towns in America. I'll make that terrifying. It's got, yeah. I could be called out and be wrong here, but I think it's got the first great villain in a Hitchcock movie so far. I would agree. Like, that's um, kind of a, like, oh, no way. Some good horror films, but like, Peter this Lurie. is by far superior. Peter, yeah, Peter Laurie was good, but come on. Like, this is another level. In, uh, like, Peter Laurie is, Peter Laurie is always the yeah. main. Peter Laurie is always great. You can't beat Peter Laurie. But he's like the ultimate villain. He's probably still in like Hitch's top five for villains, but he wasn't quite quite there. I also like that this film is sort of a departure from a lot of stuff that will come later for Hitchcock. Like so many of his films are about a man who's wrongfully accused. And this is about a villain who is maybe not a villain. You kind of hope, but you know all along that he is. It's like the reverse okay, normally does. But I will, I will also say this, Chris. I agree that I did not enjoy it as much this time as I thought I would. So that's not going to help it down the road. But I still think it's better. Yeah, I, well, it's well, not you know top Thank three, you so much for that, Sean. That, you know what? I, Wait, I what? much better now. Thank well, you. I'm sorry, but like, it's just, well, I'm trying to be honest on a case by case. Like, I'm not going in assuming one film. You know be what I think? I'll promise. tell you what I think. I think you what? guys have been spellbound. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> By Hitchcock's quote that it's his favorite movie, and then you guys are I trying don't. to legitimize that. I just said that. I didn't agree with that anymore. But I don't think it's his best movie, and it's not my favorite Hitchcock movie. No. I, again, this is almost like a, a look of what to come potential from Hitchcock. I think this will be like okay. Four, I think this will be oh, four is that to right, six, Tyler? Four to seven. Four Sean? to seven range. Four to seven Sean? range. Okay, whatever. Sean? Yeah, that's fair, Sean. All right, Tyler. Yeah, a yeah. movie of things to come. Yeah. 
more than four more than foreign correspondent what it's on par with it's no it's on par with showing potential for him but this is a better film overall oh gosh. all right well next week we're going to be looking at rope uh no no no, no. notorious next week notorious it's next it's notorious really next. yeah Ooh. who's the hitchcock fan now chris uh, well, correspondent drops Tyler. down to number ten just for that mistake. I think I've embarrassed myself enough in this episode. Uh, next, no, week just say it again. Start again. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Next week. No, yeah, go ahead. You know, what? no, it's fine. You do it, Sean. Perfect. Next week we're going to be doing Notorious, Chris. Are you looking forward to that? <laughs> oh God, he's so upset about what. You know what? I don't even care what anyone has to say. Uh, as it stands, in number one, first place is Shadow of a Doubt, uh, followed very Number two is Foreign Correspondent. Followed very closely by Foreign Correspondent at number two. And who knows? Week. Maybe it might still be number two next week. Maybe Notorious will be number three. Who knows? Good luck with that. I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not betting on that. I'm well, excited we have to no see idea. where Biggie Smalls got his name from when we watch our movie <laughs> next week. I honestly don't remember like a moment from it, so. Other than the glass of milk, like that's really the only. Did image you come I up with that, Tyler? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Glass of milk. <laughs> no, like notorious B.I.G. suspicion. Oh, is that suspicion? Yeah. God damn it! God damn it! See, I don't so remember you literally don't remember. Yeah, I literally don't. Remember. <laughs> no, but there is kind of like a drink potion that uh, Ingrid Bergman. Yeah. You know. But that's maybe I guess. Okay, but the, whatever the milk one is, is the one with like the, the iconic image. But all right, with like the that's light it. inside the milk, you're talking. Yeah, about? that's suspicious. That's suspicion, I'm pretty sure. Okay, I, I knew I would. Chris and I were talking about that earlier, but we've got to get some more in there. I mean, what else can we got? Like, it's all about the family plot, you know? Like, I'm gonna start calling you Marnie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we need to stop before people think we're real losers. <laughs> oh no, they they, they 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 they're, they're not it, listening. Uh, they, Think they've tuned into a podcast with the wrong man. Ooh, Henry Fonda. Oh my god! Chris it's turned into a pun gun situation. I hate puns. Uh, yeah, the pun gun that. has exploded. Everyone's freaking out. Sean is okay. Tyler's okay. Chris is okay. We are going to see you guys next week when we talk about a little-known film called Notorious, starring Cary Grant and Edward Bergman, directed, of course, by uh, of Hitchcock. And I'll just go out and say it. I thought you were going to say Robert Rodriguez there, so I'm really glad you didn't. <laughs> uh, notorious. Mm-mm-mm. Any, uh, if you were to describe Sean, sex pot. One, okay, two words. Sex pot. Tyler, sex what about pot. you? <laughs> yeah, it's a sexy movie. Uh, that's three words. Uh, so. <laughs> I think it's, it's more like uh, Do you want to do sexy movie or sexy. it's sexy? Or it's uh or no, that's four words. <laughs> I'll go with a movie. How about that? <laughs> yeah, perfect. Sex pot. Uh, I'll call it. Um, you know what? I'm just gonna keep it simple and just call it um, movie movie. See you then.